So, Shio, what's something you think about yourself that others see completely differently? I was just having this conversation, actually, because I have a bunch of family in town. It turns out when you move to California from Boston, your family visits you a lot more. That's what I'm discovering. But um, I have family in town, and we were just having this conversation about whether we're all introverts or extroverts. And I am 100% confident that I'm an introvert. There is no question to me about that. And they're all absolutely certain that I'm an extrovert. Wait, do you think I'm an extrovert too? Well, you're the guy who gets on stage and gives these like sweeping presentations and networks with everybody all day long. Yeah, but then I'm exhausted. You seem like an extrovert to me. (laughs) I do that stuff. Yeah, that was, and they said nobody who records a podcast is every week is an introvert, which also seems crazy to me. The whole thing about what it means to be an introvert versus an extrovert is like where you derive your energy from. And I do this stuff. I present at conferences or do these podcasts or go into meetings. And then I'm just like zapped of energy. So I'm positive that I'm an introvert, but apparently no one else thinks that about me. I'm I'm the same way. I'm probably the most extroverted introvert there is. And I'll tell you when we're done with these, no, no, podcasts- no, you're not an introvert. This is, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Whatever I am, you are far more extroverted than me. Do you know how exhausted I am when we're done with these podcasts after talking to you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Well, why am I asking this? I guess we all suffer from this kind of disconnect. Our perception of ourselves can be pretty different from how others perceive us. And it turns out that this is true for utilities, too. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. So how does this impact this industry, the sales cycle for companies trying to hawk software or distributed energy services to those utilities? That is what we're discussing today. I am GTM Editor-in-Chief Stephen Lacey in Boston, alongside GTM's Senior Vice President and the Head of GTM Research, Shale Khan, who's out in Oakland. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. And we've got a colleague with us who... We're not sure if he's an introvert or an extrovert. He's clearly extroverted enough to get on this podcast. It's Nick Rinaldi, a senior manager at Green Tech Media. Nick is uh, usually the guy making things happen behind the scenes, but we pushed him center stage today in order to talk about a survey project he's been working on. Hello, Nick. Hey, guys. It's an honor to be here. We're going to talk about some very interesting findings related to how utilities view themselves how third parties view utilities, and what that means for selling products. You know, energy is probably the most paradoxical of any industry. In no other area that I can think of do we see such a disconnect between, you know, fast-paced technology innovation and incumbent willingness to adopt those new technologies. This presents kind of a, a problem for startups, a captivity problem, if you will, particularly in electricity. Startups need these incumbent utilities to reach customers and integrate their products on the grid, but this significantly slows down their progress having to rely on utilities. Uh, it creates tension, and it potentially destroys their chances of success. Will this situation ever change, or is it just the reality that startups and their investors consequently need to accept? And then what about those utilities? What is at the root of their hesitancy to quickly adopt new technologies? Nick, you've been working on this survey for a while. It's actually the second version, so you've done this a couple times. Um, We're trying to answer this question. So explain the approach first off. 
Sure. So let me give you guys a little bit of background on where the survey comes from. So essentially, it's part of our GTM Squared uh, service, which is a premium editorial membership here at uh, Green Tech Media. Stephen, you'll remember you came up to New York earlier this year and we locked ourselves in one of our conference rooms here in the office for uh, an afternoon and we threw a bunch of ideas at the wall for this year's report. And we left the conference room with utility sales cycle uh, because, well, for one, it's incredibly important to our uh, audience and uh, clients, obviously. But two, we hadn't really seen any quantifiable data or insights on the topic. So there was a lot of uh, speculation. It seemed like something that we could provide value with through our survey. So here we are. We have this uh, survey that just came out yesterday, and we really are looking for it to act as a benchmark, uh, kind of a lingua franca to get the conversation um, started between utilities and vendors, um, and just to help them better understand uh, what's important for each party on on, uh, each side of the the negotiating and, and sales table. Yeah, and I'll add a third there. I mean, we just looked at the landscape, and it was pretty clear that most of the companies out there that we're tracking, the vendors, are having a hard time because the sales cycles are much longer than they anticipated. So in general, like it could be one to three years for certain technologies. Uh, you look even further out for technologies like distributed energy resource management systems. You can, you know, it can take three, four years to make a sale once you get that first utility customer it's a little bit easier but this is a chronic problem in the industry and when we started digging through some of the problems that we wanted to tackle and try to understand more this was a pretty obvious one but before we get into the utility sales cycle stuff there you guys started this survey with like a set of two questions that I love and was using in presentations last year and will continue to do so now, which is, so you, you surveyed both utilities and non-utilities. So a lot of the really interesting results are seeing the differences and responses between the two groups. And so the first couple of questions were basically about the readiness of this sector to deal with the adaptation to a distributed energy grid and all the new things that are coming as a result of that. And so the first question was basically, is the industry prepared for how distributed energy is going to change utilities? And then the second question was, is your company prepared? And my favorite thing about it just in general across all respondent types is like 86% of people said the industry is not prepared, but 68% of people said my company is prepared, which I love. It's just like, the industry's not ready, but I'm ready. It's like how everybody thinks that they're taller than average. You know, clearly there's this disconnect between how utilities view the rest of the industry and how they view themselves. Um, But still, you know, 38% of utilities saying that their organization is prepared is pretty low. So there's a recognition that... um, preparedness levels are not where they need to be. Yeah, and actually one of the interesting findings when we compare this uh, to last year, because as Shale mentioned, we did ask this exact same question last year, is we see that the industry is more pessimistic um, this year. So I'm sure as we you know go on here, continue the conversation, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of uncover maybe some reasons why that is. No, I think that's worth digging into, actually. I thought that was really interesting, somewhat sad, that everybody sort of overall year over year thought both that their organization was less ready. Fewer people said that their own organization was ready for changes to the grid and fewer people said that the industry was ready for that. And I wonder whether 
things like the sort of we've talked about on this podcast before the challenge of say rev in new york and this initiative that came in this some sort of bombastic incredibly um forward thinking regulatory process and then it, it has ultimately just gotten mired in in slow process not that it's not going to happen but just i think people have gotten a little bit disillusioned about the process and i wonder whether things like that are driving a little bit more pessimism or whether it's something specific to like this industry just won't be able to handle all the changes that are coming its way. Yeah. I've been calling this the 27 edition of this report, the morning after report, because it seems like in 2015, 2016, we're all pumped up on rev and you had like dram in California and you know, all these acronyms show, which I know you'd like to talk about dream, et cetera. And people were really excited and they thought stuff would happen. And then we're, everyone's kind of looking around and seeing, okay, this is not happening as fast as we'd like to. And, um, I think that's the where like you hit it on the, the nail on the head. I think that's where some of the, the pessimism is coming from. And that like speaks to this broader conversation that we're having today, which is just how many times are we going to get burned by the reality of timelines in electricity? It's just a slow moving industry. The regulatory compact sort of enforces that with utilities. Utilities themselves historically have been pretty staid and stable and intentionally relatively slow moving. And so we keep finding these places. This has happened at various times as part of what caused the sort of clean tech venture capital boom and bust years ago. But it's happening again now in a regulatory context of just like we get overly excited about how quickly things are going to change. And then a bit disillusioned when they don't. I guess it's the, what do they call that in the the hype cycle? It's like the valley of despair or something. I think it's important then to shift to what organizations, utilities and non-utilities alike are doing to prepare for that change. And what we found was that um, this customer-centric, customer engagement approach, which could be a lot of different things, was most important for utilities Tell us a little bit about that one, Nick. Yeah. So again, when we can look at the 2016 version and compare um, results for the same question this year, across the board, we actually see customer engagement kind of on the very upward trend line. So last year, it was the number three priorities for utilities in terms of investment over the next five years. This year, it has moved up to the number one priority. And uh, I think we're seeing that in some other research we're doing as well, that uh, you know, customer engagement strategies are benefiting not only the customer, but the utility in terms of uh, we're seeing some other research we're doing that uh, utilities with higher customer engagement and customer service scores have, uh, it's correlated to uh, better rate case um, decisions, uh, lower cost to serve. So I think utilities are recognizing this customer engagement as a core um, business function and it's moving up the priority. But like, what do we really mean? I mean, customer engagement is such a buzzy term for utilities. Of course they want customer engagement. I mean, I guess there's, you can make a case that in the past when they were kind of, there was, they were a regulated monopoly and, you know, they, they only had to answer to their regulators and there were no real threats to their business model. That customer engagement was a little lower on the list and that now they're emerging competitors. And so they have to focus more on having a good customer service process. And, and that arguably is a good thing. But I also think that customer engagement is just really easy to say if you're a utility or if you're a DER provider, like whoever you are, of course you want your customers to like you. Like how does that actually play out? And 
you know, do we think that there is something different happening as a result of that increased focus? Yeah, so I, I think it's playing out in a couple of ways. And based on some of the comments we, we saw in the survey report, um, one, you're seeing some grid defection from large CNIs. When, when utilities are starting to lose those big customers, they're taking notice and they're, they're, maybe they don't have a fully coalesced idea of what that customer engagement looks like, but they understand they need to do a better job at it. Um, as someone who's actually sitting right now in the uh, BQDM, uh, territory for Con Ed in in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Queens uh, Demand Management Project, which was uh, which is uh, to defer, um, you know, a big substation investment here in Brooklyn. It's like I think deferring a billion dollar substation upgrade. Yeah, exactly. So now Con Ed is not going to come to me and knock on my door, on my apartment door, and say, "Please join BQDM." But for you know some of the the larger facilities around here, it's a, it's a big manufacturing area. Having that engagement is key, probably to. Not, you know, BQDM as an example, but for program participation. Uh, and, and, and once we get into like a lot of marketplaces, right? So in Rev, what seven out of the 17 demonstration projects right now in Rev are utility marketplaces. I think that's what they're thinking about when they talk about customer engagement and, and just greater adoption. You know, we talked about a few weeks ago on this podcast and we were talking about um, Google and energy. We got into this conversation about whether my idea that Google should buy a utility. Um, and I sort of finished that by saying like, well, someone should buy a utility and, and try to run it differently. And then since then I've gotten like a flood of comments from people, um, and emails, some of which are saying, here's why it's a bad idea. But others are saying like, here's why I tried to buy a utility a while back and why, why it didn't work. But you know, a lot of them revolve around, could you buy a utility and then focus it more on providing additional services to customers. I mean, I heard some what sounded like some really bad ideas, like buy a utility and start selling like lawn care services, you know? Um, but the idea that the utility has a touch point with all these residential customers and should be able to leverage that in some new way. And some utilities have messed around with that. We, we started looking at this a couple of years ago, utilities just like expanding what they're selling beyond electrons into other things. But none of those... First of all, as far as I can tell, none of those increased their customer service record or their net promoter score. And second of all, none of them have been like big, successful businesses, especially when compared to the traditional regulated rate of return you get on the on everything that you rate base. So, you know, to be to give credit to utilities, I think I, we spent a lot of time just like pointing out all the things that are challenging about utilities. They have a pretty simple mandate, and that is to keep the lights on as affordably as possible for customers. And the regulators are really going to come down on them if they don't keep the lights on. And they're really going to come down on them if they start to try to charge too much. So they have a pretty simple sort of basic focus. And they obviously want to make money as they do it. So they try to build a bunch of stuff to rate base. But I have a lot of sensitivity toward this idea that utilities are just totally doing it wrong and that anyone else could come in and offer significantly better customer engagement overnight. I, I want to finish up by looking at some of the other areas of preparation among utilities. So they're somewhat evenly distributed between three areas. One is this amorphous and somewhat difficult to define area of customer engagement and that could mean a couple different things on the CNI side and on the residential side. The other is regulator and policymaker engagement. And then also utilities are saying that um, they're investing a lot more in technology and research and development 
this is really where we get down to the difficulties in the industry. And it's important to identify why vendors don't succeed and what utilities are looking for. So um, what are utilities exactly looking for when choosing a vendor? Both utilities and non-utilities, the people selling the products, say that integration with their legacy systems is the most important. Um, Talk about what these power companies are assessing when considering partnering with a vendor. Sure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. So the the number one priority is a technology that is interoperable or dovetails well with a legacy system. Uh, Number two is going to be cost. Um, And then the third is going to be working with a vendor that has a trusted brand with experience in traditional power markets. And what's interesting is that you see a disconnect here as well between utilities and non-utilities, especially when it comes to um, the cost element. So non-utilities tend to emphasize cost much less than utilities. They also uh, emphasize the um, innovative applications almost five times more based on the survey results than utilities did. So this is another area where I think that vendors you know, product management teams, business development, marketing people could look at what utilities value and maybe position their solutions to um, better address that. But like everything you just said to me seems like a recipe for a huge incumbency advantage, because if if what utilities really want is something, one, that is interoperable with their existing legacy systems, and two, comes from like a trusted brand that has already worked with utilities, I mean, that's going to make it so much easier for the GEs and Schneiders and ABBs and, you know, SNCs of the world who built those legacy systems and have the trusted brand to go in and offer something new to a utility as opposed to, you know, some newfangled startup that built some exciting new technology. I mean, in addition to the sales cycle being a challenge for smaller companies, if that's what utilities prefer, it's just going to make it all the harder to sell to them. Yeah, and actually Jeff St. John, uh, our Grid Edge staff writer here at Green Tech Media, has done some interesting work on this, particularly for GTM Squared in his weekly column. Uh, he looked at software uh, adoption curves, and I think one of the, the findings he, 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 he took out of that um, was that it, it's pretty difficult, especially for these cloud-based software providers. Um, you know, I guess take Opower, for example. Um, they, they eventually get tucked in or acquired by one of these incumbents like Oracle, and that seems to be... Kind of the exit strategy for them, and, and it's difficult to just build a, a business on your own without, you know, having a that, that strong strategic partner like an incumbent. Right, but this can't be like this can't be the end game. You know, it seems to me like you don't want a market. You can't. You don't want a market where there's uh, all this potential for technological innovation, but it can only come from the incumbents. I mean, they can do great stuff, but you want room for startups as well. And, you know, startups in this market, specifically startups who are building technologies that have to be sold to utilities, they face these like dual really big challenges. One being the one that we just talked about that they're not preferred. They have a harder time winning a bid against somebody who's more established and has more familiarity with legacy systems. And second, that the time horizon of the sales cycle and of even the scaling cycle after you sell. You mentioned earlier, Stephen, that once you sell to one utility, it's easier to sell to others. Like that's kind of true. You know, it, it, success begets success a little bit in this market. But I mean, we can count 
any number of instances where there's been some technology vendor that has had some success with like pilot programs with one or two utilities, but then can't, doesn't immediately find itself a wash in business from a bunch of others. Every utility is kind of an island unto itself and they don't necessarily follow each other in adopting these technologies all that quickly. So there's got to be a solution to that. And I keep thinking about other industries where you have similar like incumbency advantages and long time horizons to get a product to market, if not also long sales cycles. And and whether there's something you can take from, as an example, like the pharmaceutical industry seems sort of interesting to me because there are startup drug companies. Um, they do take you know a decade to get a product to market, but they are able to find financing in the interim that has a long enough time horizon uh, and, you know, they're able to provide some visibility into the idea that, oh, if I can't, if this drug does pass FDA approval, then there will be a market for it. So there must be something to take from that industry or another one where there's just, you know, healthcare, where there's like really long cycles, a lot of complexity and regulatory issues, but they make it work somehow. But I don't think by saying that startups will succeed through mergers and acquisitions with bigger players is saying that the market is somehow unhealthier as a result. Like these are companies well, with O-Power these are companies with 50 of- or 100 years of experience in the electric sector. And so it makes sense that most of the startups would get acquired um, either their IP or their teams would get acquired by these bigger legacy companies that you know are still doing pretty innovative things. Like why is that a bad thing? I just don't want it to be the only path to market. I don't I mean, think o- it will be the o- only path. O-Power did go public first, right? So O-Power right. is sort of a success story here. They were well, no, the software they, company they, they, that went public. They got acquired by Oracle for half their pri- their their IPO price. Yeah, exactly. Like, so they were look, a success story. It was a story. successful exit given the the experience of other companies like O-Power. Like, I think O-Power, we can say, was a success. But they got acquired for half of their IPO price, showing still how difficult it is to scale a business like that and showing that to get to a billion-dollar company, you need a company like Oracle to acquire you. It's very hard to do that organically. But that's my point is that Opower you know, is the best success story of the, this type of business that we can point to. And even they, you can make the case they were, depending on the time frame that you're looking at, were a success or not. You know, don't you want this to be a market? This is a gigantic market, right? Stepping back. This is the thing that always confounds everybody and I think confounded venture capitalists for years and years. Like electricity is hundreds of billions of dollars a year just in the US. It's trillions of dollars a year globally. It's a gigantic market. Everyone agrees that there is technological innovation to be had and there are purchasers, those being the utilities or depending on the product, rate payers, who have a lot of money um, and are willing to adopt something new. That is a recipe for what should be a bunch of billion dollar companies springing up, but it's just not happening in that way. And though I'm all for the big incumbents continuing to innovate and sell to utilities, I just don't think that should be the only way to get a big product to market. Are there certain market constructs that you're identifying that would, that would allow those startups to grow in a different way? So I don't have like a full solution here, obviously. If I did, I'd be like running the billion dollar software company. Yeah, exactly. We would have different jobs. Yeah, but um, but a few things that can help. I mean, one, and this is easy to say and hard to find, find patient capital. Don't 
give unrealistic growth expectations to your investors. Don't tell them that if you're selling something to utilities, don't give them the expectation that you're going to make a profit in three years. It's just not going to happen. Uh, it's going to take longer than that. The other thing that I think is sort of interesting, and I'll just, um, I'll, I'll give you a little window into a podcast that that's coming in a few weeks. So last night, um, I was at this event that was hosted by Powerhouse, the clean tech incubator in the Bay Area, where we did an interview with Dick Swanson, who's the founder of SunPower. Um, and this is, we recorded it. So we're going to release this on, on this feed in a few weeks. But we talked a little bit with him about the early days of SunPower. Now, the crazy thing about SunPower is that SunPower is a hardware company, right? And they were making solar panels beginning in the 80s. And there was such a small market for solar at that point. They're selling for these off-grid applications, marijuana growing farms, but also like, you know, lights on the side of the highway. Um, that was the kind of thing that you would sell solar panels for. And there just wasn't a big market for that. But they did raise money and they did have to grow. And so they had all these times when there just wasn't enough demand for their product. And what they would end up doing is they'd be using their fab to sell something else. And he listed off a whole bunch of things that SunPower made that had nothing to do with solar that went as far as like they were making um, sort of fake retinas that would go in people's eyes that apparently didn't really work. But the point being, what they did is they found ways to leverage their manufacturing facility and their technological capabilities to sell something else to keep the lights on while they were continuing to develop the technology that they thought would have longevity. And it worked for them, ultimately. We close call in a few times, but SunPower exists through today. And I think this is, to some degree, a lesson for grid edge companies as well, which is have an early path to market on something that you know you can sell and that doesn't require a utility sales cycle, whether that's related directly to your core technology or not figure out a way to have cash coming in the door so that you can continue operating and exist and just survive through how long this cycle is going to take. Okay, so we touched upon uh, some of the potential answers for navigating this, and that is resetting expectations if you're a vendor and, and maybe looking for more patient sources of capital. Um, also developing products that can be used in other industries, and then maybe you can fold in utility applications um, what about on the utility side? Are there any sort of pieces of advice that we can glean from this survey on how utilities can be get better at procuring this stuff? Yeah, you know, I think there's some factors around organization and internal communication. So it, it's not very sexy, but it, a buzzword that's been going around, and we see it in the survey and some other research we've done, is a cross-functional team. So uh, essentially um, working groups within utilities that pull from different departments that can help guide, uh, you know, grid engine investment and technology adoption so that, you know, for example, you know, maybe a program manager who was responsible for guiding investment um, in the past doesn't run into an obstacle down the road after an investment decision has been made when he presents to the, he or she presents to the system engineer. So that's something that uh, I think internally there's an organization element that utilities are looking inward and saying we can improve on this to speed up adoption. And if you want to actually even be a little bolder with that, there's one interesting example that I've been monitoring, which is, so there's this partnership we've talked about, I think before between Sunrun and National Grid, um, where they're doing a few different things together. They're like co-marketing solar in the Northeast where National Grid has retail sales, but they also have this uh, partnership as part of that to look at grid solutions um, using solar and energy storage. So they're trying to test out use cases for um, 
you know, grid applications, TND deferral, anything like that. And they, the way that they structure that partnership is that they actually have a joint team. So the, you know, staffers from both Sunrun and National Grid fully staffed on this joint task force. This is all they're doing to work on these things together. And so I would hope that from National Grid's perspective, that exposure into the environment and atmosphere and sort of innovative structure of a company like Sunrun would provide them some benefit. And from Sunrun's perspective, getting how a utility thinks about things is also probably beneficial. I don't know what's come out of that partnership yet, but I'd be interested to see more partnerships between utilities and third parties wherein they actually co-staff a group. So there's a lot to unpack in this survey. There are some pretty fascinating results. Some of them um, are maybe a couple of them are obvious if you're a business trying to work with utilities. Some of them are a little bit more surprising, and I think this can help you understand uh, how companies are navigating this very long and difficult sales cycle in the utility sector. Nick, where can folks find this survey? Yeah, this survey is part of GTM Squared, so all members of Squared get this. You can become a member at gtmsquared.com. Uh, in addition to this, you get some really awesome insights each week, some intel from the minds of our editors, including Steven. So gtmsquared.com, check it out. We've got columns on the grid edge, on storage, on solar, on state and federal policy from our writers. They are working overtime to try to provide some uh, additional analysis beyond the headlines that you read every week. We're really proud of this content. We got a lot of great feedback. And so if you're not a member, it is very inexpensive to become one and you get access to additional resources like this survey along with our weekly columns. Uh, Nick Rinaldi, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. All right. Well, with ShaleCon and our guest, Nick Rinaldi, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Weekly Conversations on the Global Energy Transformation. We'll catch you next week.